your Bibles again, I'm turning once more to Romans chapter 11. Romans chapter 11. We'll read these last four verses together from verse number 33. That's our text for this morning. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. For who hath known the mind of the Lord, or who hath been his counselor, or who hath first given to him, and it shall be recompensed unto him again? For of him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Amen. Let's bow together, please, again in prayer and look to the Lord for his help. Eternal God and Father, we come humbly again before thee and before thy word. We realize, O oh Lord, that we are finite creatures, and we're seeking, dear Father, to understand the ways of the infinite God. And so we must again come humbly and say, O oh Lord, your ways are unsearchable. But, dear Father, that does not mean we can't understand what you revealed. Help us not to take the attitudes that because you are so vast beyond us, that we would therefore give up trying to understand what you revealed. Oh Lord, we understand there are things beyond what you revealed. But help us, dear God, to understand and grasp what you have said in your word. Grant us such a spirit that we would not be content with immature thinking, but seek to grow in our knowledge of thee, our God, and of your Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Cause us to grow in our knowledge today. But dear Father, not only that our minds would be informed, but much more that our souls would be moved. Move our hearts today. Move us to praise, and to adoration, and to glorifying Thee, our great God. We look to Thee, we need help again. Bring the word to each and every hearer. We pray in Jesus' name and for His sake. Amen. Amen. This is my last intended message on uh, the section of Romans 9 through uh, 11. Uh, there is so much more, I understand, that could be said and discussed. And uh, these verses are certainly uh, contain some very, very deep truths. The three chapters have historically generated debates between genuine believers. I'm not talking about a debate between those who don't know the Lord, but between those who do know the Lord. And there are uh, certainly significant debates over these verses. You think of chapter 9 and the sovereignty of God in salvation, the debates that those verses have engendered. You think of the nature of God's covenant with Israel. You think of the future of Israel as a nation. And then you get debates regarding all manner of end times theology. These verses... I've certainly caused a fair bit of heat and debate. Now, those things can be beneficial. Uh, Debate between those of a teachable heart and a teachable spirit does indeed lead to a deeper knowledge of the truth, and that's a good thing. But that's not always the case. And so I sought last time to emphasize to you that recognizing this passage as containing verses upon which good men differ, there is the necessity of humility and respectful difference. And I trust we got that thought at least half right last Lord's Day. 
that whilst I may have presented a viewpoint, I respect that there are those who may differ from that viewpoint. But it is incumbent upon us to examine the Scriptures, to examine the Word, and to try to determine the meaning of the Scriptures. But as I prayed in my prayer, not that our minds would be filled, but that we would get to where Paul gets. If we simply know more and delight to know more, but that does not result in knowledge or does not result in worship, then our knowledge is flawed. An intellectual knowledge of God can be accurate, but a spiritual knowledge of God will always lead to worship. And so considering these three chapters, we must get to the end of this. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be glory forever. Amen. And so in summarizing really the background and the context of these verses, I want to start where I finished last Lord's Day. And I think in so doing, we'll get to this last section. We finished last time by noting, if you like, three hopeful applications that arise from the passage. And I end it there very deliberately because I believe those are things that we can all agree on despite our differences in some of the fine points of this passage. There are things that I think we should all be able to affirm and things that will ultimately lead to us worshiping our God. We should be assured that Christ's death secures the salvation of every elect soul, both Jew and Gentile. We should affirm and be assured in our souls that the only way a sinner can be forgiven is through Christ's work, whether they be Jew or Gentile. I remind you again of verse number 26, that having dealt with the truth of the salvation of Israelites, the Lord says through Paul, there shall come out of Zion the deliverer and shall turn away ungodliness from Jacob, for this is my covenant unto them when I shall take away their sins. Now that verse emphatically refers to Christ's first coming out of Zion. It's not a reference to his return or his second coming. His second coming is from heaven. His first coming is out of Zion, out of the people of God. And as such, we see his first coming secures the promises of the covenant of Jeremiah 31 that God will remember their sins and their iniquities no more. And so he's telling them again that if a Jew is going to be saved and enter glory, it is not because of their ethnicity, it is because of the covenant promises to God secured by Christ's blood. And we affirm that. We say amen to that. Again, there may be differences of opinions, but I'm saying this is something we stand upon. And I remind you again, our only hope is Christ's blood and Christ's righteousness, Jew or Gentile. We also notice that we should be expectant and prayerful that Jews can and will be converted. Again, that is the expectation, verse number 28. As concerning the gospel, they are your enemies for your, sorry, they are enemies for your sakes, referring to the Gentiles. Gentiles, the Jews at that time were serving very much as enemies of the gospel. But as touching the election, they are beloved for the Father's sake, for the gifts and calling of God are without repentance. And Paul continues then in verse number 30, emphasizing the fact that though they had not believed God's Gentiles, they obtain mercy. So those Jews who do not believe at Paul's time, they also could obtain mercy. There was the expectation 
of Jewish converts at the time of Paul's writing and then in subsequent generations. That was the expectation. And you say, well, obviously so. Well, it wasn't obvious to the Romans. It had to be stated. Their concern was they were boasting against the natural branches. They had a proud and arrogant heart, and it seemed to me the case that they actually suspected that there'd be no Jewish conversions going forward. And Paul's saying, no, the gifts and calling of God are without repentance. There will be Jewish converts in the coming days, and we should pray for that. We should earnestly seek the face of God that he would save Jews in our generation for the glory of his name. Because we must also thirdly then be comforted. Be comforted that all who believe, both Jew and Gentile, can obtain mercy with the Lord. I believe with all of my heart that until Christ comes, anybody who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. I think that needs affirmed. Again, some of the confusion that exists around these verses when it comes to time phases is that, well, is there some sort of time that Gentiles can't be converted? Now, I don't believe that those who hold that position are suggesting that, but it's one of the things that leads to confusion. Could there be a time when Gentiles are no longer saved? Is there a time when Jews can't be saved? And I think the heartbeat of Paul's words in Romans 10 and 11 are that whoever calls upon the name of the Lord and trusts in Christ can be saved, whether they be Jew or Gentile. And I believe that is true all the way until Christ returns in judgment. There's no time that a believing Jew is turned away and no time that a believing Gentile is turned away. They can always be saved by calling upon the Lord. There is mercy with the Lord. Now you turn back to Romans chapter 10 just to, to see that point. Verse number 12 for there is no difference between the Jew and the Greek. For the same Lord overall is rich unto all that call upon him. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And that's the, the general thrust of the entire phase of the Great Commission. That the gospel goes out into every nation. And whilst there is a predominance of Gentile conversions, the point of the passage is that whoever you are, whatever your ethnicity is, call upon the Lord and be saved. For you today, that's true. That if you call upon the Lord, it doesn't matter your DNA. It matters where you are in terms of your heart with God. And when God gives you a new heart and you call upon the Lord, there is the absolute assurance that you will know mercy with the Lord. These wonderful truths, I believe, provoke worship. It does so in Paul's heart. A recognition that Christ's death has secured the covenant whereby all manner of people can be converted through Christ's blood. That they will come and call upon the Lord. These things then move Paul to praise God in worship. You see, if I asked you the question, what is Romans 9 through 11? What's this section really all about? Well, really, these chapters are about how God's covenant of grace works out in the New Testament age. It's really what they're about. It's about how God's covenant of grace works out in the New Testament age, because that's the concern. Gentiles being converted, but, but what about God's covenant to Israel in the Old Testament? How, how does God's covenant work out in the New Testament age? How does God save Jews and Gentiles now? 
And Paul gives details to that. He makes the point that he is faithful. God is faithful to his covenant. Again, the three chapters all begin with Paul making some personal reference to his burden for his own people, emphasizing again the fact that God has not cast away his people. And so he cares for them. He is zealous for their salvation, chapter 9. He prays for them, chapter 10. And he takes himself as an example in chapter 11 of the faithfulness of God in keeping his covenant. So Paul's improving God's sovereign method in saving sinners. Let me make this even simpler. What was the great Reformation cries in the solas? Well, we've sold a scripture to begin with. We've sold their glory at the end. That's chapter 11. But in between those, those three great souls, salvation is by grace alone, in Christ alone, through faith alone. Those are the great central truths of the Reformation because the Reformation was highlighting again what the Bible says. Those are the three central truths in these chapters. Chapter 9. Salvation is by God's sovereign grace alone. It's not by works. It's not by earned merit in advance. It is by the free and sovereign mercy of God, saving souls whom he has chosen. It's also in Christ alone. Chapter 10 makes that clear. Verse number 9. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believeth. So salvation is by grace alone. It's in Christ alone. And the availability of Christ is the foundation for the assurance that whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Yeah, you see this? Grace alone, Christ alone. And then chapter 10 and 11, they emphasize the importance of faith. Faith alone. Whether you be a Gentile or a Jew. The Jews, they didn't believe and they're cut off. But they can be regrafted in by faith. And the Gentiles who did not believe, they were afar off, they're wild olive trees, but now they're grafted in. Why? By faith. And so you see these things, they come to the very fore. Salvation, grace alone, Christ alone, faith alone. And so in many ways, and here I want to encourage you, these chapters are teaching us the fundamentals of the Christian faith. God's faithfulness keeps his word. There's a remnant, even in Paul's day, verse number 5, chapter 11, there's a remnant according to the election of grace. And the entire section is fundamentally teaching us about how God saves sinners. Gentiles, but also in chapter 11, it's about how God saves Jewish sinners. And so the chapter is much more about method than it is about how many. It's about how God works in the Jew to save them and to bring to Christ Jesus. That's why verse 33 says this, How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. The method of God, the purpose of God in saving sinners, is part of the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. His ways describe his actions in verse 33, his dealings with mankind. And so we don't understand the mind of God, verse 34. We can't know the way of God, and we cannot and must not advise God how he should act, verse number 34b, who hath been his counselor. We'll come back to these things. You see, all of this, in my mind, 
really strengthens the thought that the mystery revealed here in these verses has to do with the way that God saves Jews. What does God do? Well, he keeps a remnant, but he shuts up the most in unbelief, saving Gentiles. And through saving Gentiles, he provokes some Jews to jealousy, whereby they come to faith in Christ. Who would have concocted such a scheme? Who would have concocted such a plan? The mystery of God. You see, verse number 32 repeats that thought. Again, I cited to you last time that there is this overlapping of themes here. You go back to the earlier part of Romans 11. Again, what does God do to save Jews? He saves Gentiles. Shuts Jews in blindness. Saves Gentiles and then provokes some Jews to jealousy, to emulation, whereby they are saved. Again, verse 11, If by any means I may provoke to emulation them which are my flesh, and might save some of them. And verse 32 repeats that thought. For God hath concluded them all in unbelief, that he might have mercy upon all. My Paul is making the point here again, that by shutting up Jewish people in unbelief, the ultimate outcome is in the salvation of some. There is that concept in the heart of God in this part. Verse 30 and 31. Clearly Paul is speaking of his own time. He is not referring to the future. Look what he says. Verse 30. For as ye in times past have not believed God, he's referring to Gentiles who he's writing to, yet have now obtained mercy through their unbelief, even so have these also now not believed, that through your mercy they also may obtain mercy. He's talking about his own generation. That in his own generation there were Jews and they're, they're shut up in unbelief. Ultimately that God would then have mercy upon the elect, upon, upon that remnant according to election of grace. And so Paul is taking these words, and again, one of the difficulties is verse number 32 has the word all used in two different ways. God hath included them all in unbelief, that he might have mercy upon all. But that is not unusual for Paul. You go back to chapter 5. It's not unusual for Paul to use the term all in two separate ways, those ways defined by the context. Romans chapter 5 and the verse number 18. Therefore, as by the offense of one, referring to Adam's sin, judgment came upon all men to condemnation, even so by the righteousness of one, the free gift came upon all men unto justification of life. These alls are not identical. The first all refers to all mankind. The second all refers to those who are chosen by God in Christ. So Paul uses these things differently. He does the same in 1 Corinthians 15. As in Adam all die, and so even so in Christ shall all be made alive. They're not equivalents. That's what Paul is saying in Romans chapter 11. He's describing again the ways of God that are past finding out. You see, think about this carefully. Paul is saying here that it is the purpose of God to blind the majority of Israel in unbelief. 
We look at that and say, really? Why, why would God shut up his own people in blindness? And yet the text says that. You, you think back to what we saw in the earlier verses. Verse number 8. God hath given them the spirit of slumber, eyes that they should not see. It is God's sovereign judicial purpose to blind Jewish people in unbelief. And we look at that and say, why? Well, because the ways of God are past finding out. Because Paul then says, he shuts up the Jewish nation in widespread unbelief, thereby saving Gentiles, thereby saving some Jews. That number, very many, or not so many, is not the point. It is the ways of God in providentially blinding the nation in order that he might save both Jews and Gentiles through Christ Jesus. Paul is saying, basically, as he says elsewhere, now is the day of salvation for both Jew and Gentile. That's what leads to verse number 33. Because reading verse number 33, you've got to see something in the previous context that is God working in a way that we ourselves would not have imagined. I'm telling you, that is the method they use to save Jewish sinners. And it provokes Paul to worship his God. As Paul considers the covenant of grace, his soul is moved. How could God's judicial act of hardness lead to salvation? Well, it does and he reveals it now. He makes it plain. This is how God will save Jews in future generations, in his own generation and in the future. And he says the point, oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. Again, I appreciate your patience taking some time to work through the connection here in these verses. This is one entire unit of thought, and we've got to wrestle through it in our minds. But in simple terms, considering the ways of God in saving sinners should move our souls. We're discussing how does God save sinners? How does God show his mercy towards sinners? Well, well, here's some of the ways that God does it. And what happens in Paul's soul? He's moved in his heart. And we can easily be stimulated mentally and question and ponder and wonder how does this all work together? And yet our hearts be cold. We don't want to be there. We want to make sure that we think about the ways of God. Our hearts are warmed and we're moved in our souls. Does the gospel move your heart anymore? Does it still excite your soul? We sang three wonderful hymns of praise today. I chose them deliberately. Ones that really exalted the grace and the glory of God. Was your soul moved in any way in singing those hymns? It should be. And so as we see how God moves Paul's soul, there are just three very simple observations to leave with you today and then we'll finish. First of all, these verses illustrate for us again that worship should be marked by awe. Begins this word, oh. There's so much in one letter. So much pathos and heart and passion and emotion. Oh, the depth of the riches, 
both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. Paul is immediately entering into doxology as he brings this section to a close. He closes in verse 36 with the word amen. It is the sense of the apostle standing amazed in the presence of the glory of the majesty of God. Standing with joy, stunned in the contemplation of God. He's thought about God and the outcome of all his thoughts of God is say, oh, we need to get there, dear child of God. We need to understand the ways of God in such a way that the culmination is worship and standing amazed in the presence of our God. And these verses clearly have a doxological uh, concept attached to them. They are, they are words of praise and majesty to God. The depth. God's knowledge is too deep. It is too high. It is beyond our comprehension. His judgments, his decisions, his decrees are unsearchable. His ways are past finding out. Worship marked by awe. You see, we've got to stop here and just ask ourselves the question, what does biblical worship look like? I'm not talking about the musical accompaniments. I'm not talking about all of that sort of stuff. I'm talking about what is the content of our worship? Well, well t- turn back to one example. Turn back to the Psalm 86. In the Psalm 86. Verse number 12, I will praise thee, O Lord my God, with all my heart, and I will glorify thy name forevermore. You see, the the essence of worship and praise is the public proclamation of God's attributes. That's what worship is. Again, we live in the confusion of modern age when worship becomes so very subjective. But even the subjective aspect of worship is in connection with who God is, as we'll see in this psalm. Worship is all about saying, singing, this is who God is. And so he continues, verse 13, For great is thy mercy toward me, and thou hast delivered my soul from the deepest hell. And so yes, he is applying the attributes of God personally, but he's exalting the glory of God. Verse 14, O God, the proud are risen up against me, the assemblies of violent men have sought after my soul and have not set thee before them. But thou, O Lord, art a God full of compassion and gracious, long-suffering and plenteous in mercy and truth. What does praise look like? Like this. It looks like somebody exalting the character of God and making God known. That's what our worship should be like. But an aspect, or maybe a better word is an attitude in worship, is the awe that recognizes that God is altogether beyond us. So it's worshiping God as he reveals himself, but also affirming that God is beyond our comprehension. Turn across to Psalm 145. Psalm 145 in the verse number 3, again, this idea of praising God. Verse 3 of Psalm 145, Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised, and His greatness is unsearchable. And so almost in our worship, we are not simply rehearsing what God says in His Word, 
but we are recognizing that there are aspects of the being and the knowledge of God that are beyond our comprehension, and we worship God in that sense of awe. You see, if we have a God that we can contain within our minds, we lose the awe. You think of children. When they're very young, there is a degree of awe when they walk out their front door and enter their, their, their lawn yard area. Whoo! Look what's out here. This is all so large. And then they, they get to teenage and perhaps they, 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 they go somewhere and they, they go to one of the big cities. They, they go to New York. Oh! I thought my yard was big, but look at this. And there's a sense of awe when you enter that place. Or, or then you get to the 1960s and the astronauts and they, they leave the orbit of this world and they look down upon the earth and they go, oh, with God. God is infinitely beyond our knowledge and there is no lack of awe of God and we must have a worship of God that is not just that which is contained in understanding but also understands there are thoughts beyond God. Got to keep that balance. We worship God according to truths that are revealed. And the faith that we have in God is based upon facts. We are not believing, if you like, a God that has not shown himself in the word. We believe in God as he reveals himself. And there are facts to confirm who he is. But there is so much more about God. Things not revealed. And you will understand if you're speaking with unbelievers... The things not revealed about God will sometimes lead to questions and provoke unbelief. If I can't know the answer to that question, I'm not going to believe in God. But rather than provoking unbelief, it is intended to provoke awe. You do not want a God that you can understand. A God that you can understand is no God at all. And so the unbelievers that you encounter, who have all of this list of questions, if this is answered and this is answered and this is answered, I would then believe in God. You tell them, you don't want that sort of God. That's the last sort of God you want. You want a God with whom there is mystery and who is worthy of our awe. Worship must be marked by awe. That's emphasized further and we see in the second place in Romans chapter 11 that our hearts must be marked by humility. As Paul continues his, his argumentation here and the, the questions and the answers and, and those things that he gives, he, he makes two things very, very plain. God is infinite and God is independent. You know, I want to kind of summarize and mark a note in your, in your Bible. Those are the two ultimate truths in the passage. God is infinite and God is independent. And verse 33 emphasizes the fact that we cannot understand fully the ways of God. Now, now, when I first began to work on this early in the week, I left out the word fully. It says we cannot understand the ways of God. But that's not true. Because God has revealed his mind in the word. Paul's point here is, God has revealed his mind in the word. How is God saving Jews? This way. So God has revealed this to Paul. It's a, it's a mystery again, and the mystery is something that's revealed by the Spirit of God. It's not unknown. It's 
Paul's point here is not that the ways of God cannot be understood at all, but rather they cannot be understood fully. God has revealed his mind in the word, and we can and should try to understand that. But let me put it this way. There are things that surprise us. There are things that surprise us in the ways of God. The scriptures surprise us continually in the ways of God. And so we have Isaiah 55. My thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, saith the Lord. That's Paul's point here in Romans 11. God blinds Jews to save Gentiles in order to save more Jews. We wouldn't have thought or planned this. God does the unexpected, but God always does the good. And so in humility, we must not delve into the mind and ways of God beyond what is revealed. You must not speculate as to what God is doing. You must only assert what God is doing upon the foundation of the revelation of the word of God. The secret things belong unto the Lord our God, Jeremiah 29, but those things which are revealed belong unto us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of the law. There are things that we cannot understand. Hence, we cannot, as it says in verse number 34, we cannot counsel or advise God. We don't tell God what to do. Isaiah 40, verse 13, Who hath directed the Spirit of the Lord, or being his counselor, hath taught him. Oh, if only I could talk to God, I would tell God what to do. That's the spirit of the unbelieving rebel rebellion. That's the spirit of the one who's against God and angry with God. The Bible tells us we must not and we cannot be God's counselor. Our thoughts are so puny and small, finite, that we have no right to tell God what to do. Who hath been his counselor? And so, therefore, in verse 35, he asserts that we cannot put God in our debt. Who hath first given to him, and it shall be recompensed unto him again. God owes you nothing. God owes no man anything. Therefore, he acts freely and independently. You know, if you're in debt to someone... Perhaps someone's done you a massive favor 10 years ago and you've a decision to make. Your previous indebtedness to that person impacts how you act. It has, a, it has an influence. It's, a, it's constrained upon what you may choose to do. and It's very hard to break the shackles of that sense of previous indebtedness. God knows nothing of that. God is never in debt to people. And the point that Paul is making here, he is therefore free to act according to his own will. He's not constrained or forced to do something. And, and, and to apply it in Romans chapter 11, the Jew hasn't earned rights with God. They've no claim to rights with God. What they have a claim is God's free grace in covenant. Because God has bound himself in covenant to show them grace and mercy in the salvation of a remnant. But God is free and independent. Now again, there are various ideas. Does verse 33 to 36, is it simply a response to chapter 11? Or to the whole of chapter 1 to 11? 
Again, there's certainly no reason why the whole wouldn't lead to this. Because there's, there's so much in these chapters that illustrate the marvelous ways of God that are beyond finding out. God justifies the ungodly. You read the Old Testament. It's hard to make sense of that because it's an abomination for someone to justify the ungodly. But God justifies the ungodly by sending His Son to be the substitute to live a perfectly righteous life and to die the sinner's death to justify the ungodly. For while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The ways of God are past finding out. You think of the sovereignty of God in election. Chapter 9. All of these things. How doth God yet find fault? The ways of God are past finding out. We don't understand how God can be sovereign in the hardening of the sinner, and yet that sinner still be accountable. But he is. She is. You are. God is sovereign over your heart, but if you turn your back against God, you'll be held accountable and will go to a lost sinner's hell. Hi. Put your hand in your mouth. The ways of God are past finding out. We've already mentioned, we had mentioned chapter 11. The surprising acts of God in dealing with his covenantal people, the Jew. So how do we apply all of this? Well, I've given you the clue and the out and the heading. It is the fact that in light of these things, our hearts must be marked by humility. I want you to turn you back to Job, please. Turn back to Job chapter 42, because I'm not turning here arbitrarily. There are quotations that Paul is using. He's referring to things in Job in these verses. Concepts, ideas, sometimes a direct quotation. But it leads us to the application here. In light of the knowledge of God, there is the necessity of us humbling ourselves in confession of sin. Job 42, then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that thou canst do everything and that no thought can be withholden from thee. Who is he that hideth counsel without knowledge? Therefore have I uttered that I understood not. Things too wonderful for me which I knew not. Here I beseech thee, and I will speak. I will demand of thee, and declare thee unto me. I have heard of thee by the hearing of the ear, but now mine eye seeth thee. Wherefore I abhor myself, and repent in dust and ashes. Now Job's application of this has to do with his submission to God's providences. And so back in chapter 40, verse number 2, Shall he that contended with the Almighty instruct him? The Lord is speaking to Job. And my point to you is right now, God's actions in our lives do not need to make sense to us. They need to make sense to God. Paul takes the language of Job in emphasizing the knowledge of God beyond understanding his ways past finding out. But Job's application of that is a recognition that God is God. And though we may not understand the ways of God in our lives, we must trust the ways of God in our lives. For though he try me, 
I shall come forth as gold. And so Job has many questions and difficulties and struggles, but he recognizes that God's ways are past finding out, and Paul takes that concept here in chapter 11. So humbly confess that God is your God. Which leads finally the third thing, and that is a faith that is marked by clarity. Verse 36 explains the independence of God in verse 35. Who hath first given to him, and it shall be recompensed unto him again. In other words, nobody has given to God to then be paid back by God. And then Paul emphasizes that, verse 36, for, for of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be glory forever. Amen. It's a wonderful conclusion to these chapters the three chapters that emphasize the sovereignty of God in salvation, in all of His ways, that we are not to argue or fight or quibble with God, because God is the author of all things, the agent of all things, and the aim of all things. Of Him, through Him, and to Him. Now those three points are generally held by most of the commentators. They all use words like that. Of Him, God is the author of all things. God is the one who plans creation and plans redemption. God is the originator of that plan. We don't start anything. We didn't start creation and we didn't start recreation. It's all in the origin of God. He is the author and the originator of creation and of redemption. Of him are all things. He is also the agent of all things. Through him are all things. God working in trinity and in unity. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit working together for the establishment of God's perfect will. God's power, his wisdom, his goodness, working in creation and redemption. All of these things are the works of God. Now those words, of him and through him, well, you could preach a series. The series begins in Genesis and then in Revelation because it's basically a summary of the entire Bible. God is the beginning of all things and the worker of all things. And he is the aim of all things and to him are all things. The Lord hath made all things for himself, Proverbs 16 verse 4. Yea, even the wicked for the day of evil. Everything that God has done, he is doing for his ultimate glory. And so the psalmist says, Not unto us, O Lord, not unto us, but unto thy name give glory, for thy mercy and for thy truth's sake. Not unto us, but unto God be all the glory. Why do you do all things for God's glory? Because God does all things for God's glory. That's why. Because all things are to redound to the glory and praise of God. You see, as worship is provoked by God's sovereign grace, we must be aware of and avoid any teaching that places salvation in the work and merit of man. Just think through that. The sovereignty of God in salvation leads to spiritual, sanctified, inspired worship. Anything that gives man a role in the salvation of his soul 
will ultimately lead to a depreciation of the worship of God. It matters what you think about the sovereignty of God and salvation because it impacts your worship of God. So let me close with the words of Hodge on this. He's very helpful. He says this. It is for the display of his character everything exists and is directed as the highest and noblest of all possible objects. Creatures are as nothing, less than vanity and nothing in comparison with God. Human knowledge, power and virtue are mere glimmering reflections from the brightness of the divine glory. That system of religion, therefore, is best in accordance with the character of God, the nature of man, and the end of the universe in which all things are off through and to God, and which most effectually leads men to say, not unto us, but unto thy name be all the glory. We've got to examine our souls. Does my understanding of God end at that point? Does my understanding of salvation end at that point? Does my living of this life end at that point? To God be all the glory. Anything else makes something else a God in the place of God. To God alone must be all the praise and all the glory. And he brings that about by sending his son to die on the cross to secure the mercy of God to Jews and Gentiles in every generation until Christ comes. Sola Deo Gloria. To God alone be the glory. Let's pray. Now, eternal God and Father, we pray for the grace that we need to properly feel these verses. That we'd not simply rehearse the words contained, but rather feel, O Lord, your majesty and your glory and our poverty in light of your majesty. Help us, dear Father, to submit to your ways in our lives, though things may happen in our lives that we don't understand your ways are past finding out. Help us to trust in thee in all of our ways. Give us the grace, O God, to be burdened in soul, to see lost souls converted, Jews and Gentiles. Help us, O God, to pray for global missions. Give us a desire, O God, to evangelize the lost, whoever they are. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Dear Father, there are so many applications from these verses. We've been mulling over in our minds. Help us, O God, to, to see those things that are really fitly spoken for us. That we bow in humble submission to Thee, our God, and worship Thee, and give Thee all the praise and glory. Grant help today in the nursing of ministry. Pour out your Spirit upon that service. Bring us back here tonight also in your will, that we bring much glory and praise to your name, as we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.